Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you all to the 2016 COES Lecture. Um, the COES Lecture Series was established uh, in honour of a seminal article published by Ronald Coase in Economica, um, the, LS, the journal edited at the LSE. Um, this article um, on the nature of the firm is one of the most famous articles in all of economics. Um, it essentially created the field of organisational economics, um, and it was one of the two papers cited um, in, uh, when Ronald Coase was awarded the Nobel Prize uh, for economics. Um, the other one, of course, being the equally fa uh, famous article uh, on the problem of social cost. Uh, incidentally, Coase, of course, was himself an alumnus of the LSE. Uh, he studied here and he taught here for almost 20 years before moving to the U.S. in his uh, 40s. Past Coase lectures have been given by Oliver Hart, Jean Tirole, Ernst Fair, Elhanan Helpman, uh, and Richard Blundell. Today's lecture is given by Robert Pindike. Um, Bob Pindike is the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi Professor of Economics and Finance at the MIT's uh, Sloan School of Management. Um, he's a man of admirable institutional loyalty, having also got his PhD, his master's, and his bachelor degree from MIT. Um, he's worked on the economics of natural resources, of industrial organization, uh, of real options, uh, of catastrophes, and he's one of the world's leading authorities uh, on the economics of climate change. Uh, so we're very lucky to have him here tonight, and I hope you'll all join me in welcoming him. Bob, all yours. Thank you, Ian. Uh, okay, so let's... All right. So uh, <clears throat> thank you for inviting me to give this lecture, and it's a pleasure to be here, um, especially because what I'm doing is closely related to the second great paper of Ronald Coase, and that's the, the problem of social cost, the 1960 paper that appeared uh, in the Journal of Law and Economics. And uh, let me just go to that. It's the Coase theorem. Um, the Coase theorem is actually quite remarkable. It's the, the fact that if you have a company or an entity that's polluting something, creating pollution, and uh, the polluter and the person or the group harmed by the pollution, if they have property rights, and if those property rights are well established, and the people can bargain with each other, the problem is solved. They will solve the problem, they'll come to a solution that will be efficient. It doesn't matter how many people are polluting. It doesn't have to be one in one. You can have several people doing the polluting, several people suffering from the pollution. As long as the property rights are established, well established, their bargaining will result in an efficient solution. And it's a remarkable theorem. And if you read, I reread the paper, you know, because I'm coming here. And if you read the paper, it's quite amazing. It's the, it's a, it's, the proof does not involve mathematics. It's done with words. But it's very, very nice, very clear, and a very, very impressive idea. Now, this is something that I'm sure those of you who are teaching microeconomics include in your courses, if not in the principles course, certainly by intermediate microeconomics. I mean, this is just fundamental, all right? And you explain this, you explain the idea of what's going on, probably use an example like the following. Uh, John and Jane. John owns a factory that emits pollution, effluent, into a lake, and Jane owns the lake. 
What are we going to do? Well, as long as the two of them can bargain, they will come up with an agreement. And it might involve a payment from one to the other. It might involve reducing the pollution. Whatever that agreement is, it will be efficient. It will be the best agreement that we can arrive at in terms of the economics. All right? And you'll explain that as an example. And then some student will raise her hand and say, well, you know, this just shows how you economists uh, are infatuated with your, your theories that have very little relevance to the real world. I mean, we know that, in fact, people don't own the lake, and, and uh, there are many, many factories, and so what use is this in terms of actually deal, dealing with pollution and other environmental externalities? And um, uh, especially when you talk about something like climate change, because when you're dealing with climate change, that's the next point, oops, when you're dealing with climate change, you know, you have billions of people that are creating carbon dioxide, other greenhouse gases, and you have uh, many, many people who are affected by this. I mean, the atmosphere is, I know Donald Trump thinks he owns it, but, but it's not owned by any one person. All right. So, you know, is there any relevance here when we look at climate change? And, and I'm going to argue that there is actually, that in fact, if you look at the international climate negotiations that have been taking place, uh, including Paris last December, they are, actually are an example of the Coase theorem at work. And the reason is that these negotiations can be viewed as bargaining between aggregate groups. So you start out with aggregates of polluters, and then you have an aggregate of those harmed by the pollution. And of course, many people are in both camps. So many of the people that are harmed are also doing the polluting, of course. And so you have these groups, and they're bargaining between themselves and coming up with an agreement on, right now I'm going to talk about this more, a temperature target, that we have to limit the increase in temperature by the end of the century to no more than two degrees. And then you have a next set of, of negotiations where countries bargain with each other, and they bargain over, because the temperature agreement uh, comes to an emission agreement, involves a reduction in overall emissions, they bargain over the allocations of those reductions. And you can have, just as in examples, textbook examples of the Coase theorem, you can have side payments. So it may be that rich countries will pay poor countries, um, especially countries that are most vulnerable to climate change. So if you look at this process that's been going on, it really does look very much like the kinds of uh, coast bargaining exercises that we use in microeconomics classes. What's happening, of course, is that um, we have been bargaining over these emission reductions, and the question is, has this been effective? Is this the way to go? And would we be better off, if we're concerned about the climate, to negotiate just a carbon tax? And uh, would that be better? All right. I, I'm going to argue that the negotiations over emission reductions have not been very successful, have not gone very far. They've been, they're a start, but, um, but they've been very limited. And the question then becomes, could we bargain instead over a tax, a carbon tax? And the problem with the emission reductions is that, first of all, you know, there are all these issues. Like, should a poor country reduce its emissions as much as a rich country? Should a country that already has very low emissions on a per capita basis have to reduce its 
ongoing emissions as much as a country with very high per capita emissions. There's, there's no agreement on this. Very difficult. And what should be the overall target for emission reductions, given all of the uncertainties over climate change and the potential magnitude of the impacts of that change? What is it that we should be looking for? So there are all these problems, and there are no consensus answers. And what's happened um, is that these negotiations, as a result, have been very limited. In Paris, what happened is that countries, they made no commitments, but they set targets for themselves. You know, we'll try to do this, we'll try, some countries, not all, did targets. For many of the countries, the major countries, including the United States and China, the targets they set were things they were doing anyway. Uh, so it's unclear that the net gain is very significant from those negotiations. Now they're going to meet again and again, but very, very hard to actually come up with, with actual uh, constraints on emissions. And, um, you know, for an economist, after you teach the Coase theorem and then the student says, well, how can you use this? You then, okay, we need to have a tax. And so for an economist, the usual approach is, what is the external cost of the pollution? And you impose a tax, commensurate with that. That's how we normally do it. If not a tax, it could be a emission quota. Or it could be tradable permits based on that amount of emissions. It's more efficient. But in the simplest case, it could just be a tax. That's how we would do it. And in this case, and by the way, often we talk about the social cost as the private cost plus the external cost. For some reason, in the climate change literature, Social cost refers to the external cost only, not the private cost. So I'm going to use that terminology. Um, so what we'd like to do is figure out what's the social, the external cost of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and then uh, impose a tax. To do that, we need to estimate the social cost. And here is the problem. Let's suppose for the moment we could estimate the social cost. We could agree on it. $80 a ton, whatever. Then what we could do is come up with a, with a carbon tax that could be applied to all countries. It would be a harmonized carbon tax. And I think Marty Weitzman has laid this out most, most uh, clearly. He and others have, have pushed this idea, and I think it's a very good one. With a harmonized carbon tax, uh, it's actually a better instrument. It's much easier to facilitate an international agreement. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, you're agreeing on a single number. You're not agreeing on a whole set of numbers, a number for India, a number for China, a number for Europe, and so on. You're agreeing on one number, okay? So that's easier to do. Second of all, um, it's easier to deal with different interests because, once again, whether these are poor countries, rich companies, again, it's just one number instead of a set of numbers. You eliminate the free rider incentive. You know, I want to reduce my emissions less. You reduce yours more so I can get the free rider benefit. Well, we eliminate that. There is no free rider anymore. Now we're all subject to the same, um, same uh, emission tax, right? Same pollution tax. And it's very easy to monitor compliance. Either you've imposed a tax or you haven't. And if you think about the pledges, whether they're required or they're targets or what. Very hard to monitor how much each country is reducing its emissions. It's hard for a country to know what its emissions are. Very hard to monitor how an agreement over emission reductions is actually working. So this is much easier to monitor, and it's politically attractive. 
because the way this would work is that each government would keep the money. It wouldn't go to the UN, it wouldn't go to some kind of international fund. Each government keeps the money, and it can spend that money however it likes. And that's wonderful, because now we have a new way to collect money. You know, governments like to collect money. And here, a government can say, look, I didn't want to do this, but the devil made me do it. And now, you know, we have to have this tax, and uh, we're very happy to get the money. So, it can also be flexible. It doesn't prevent monetary transfers from rich to poor countries. It doesn't prevent having a fund to help poor countries deal with, their, with the cost of, of such a tax. It's flexible. So there's good reason to think that negotiating a harmonized carbon tax would be a much better way to go than doing what we're doing now, which is trying to come up with these targets for emission reductions on a country-by-country -country basis. Now, the problem here is that we need an estimate of the social cost of carbon, of the external cost. And so far, that has been extremely elusive. We haven't been able to come up with a, a consensus estimate at all. And estimates of the social cost of carbon range, range from, from what I've seen, about $11 a ton to well over $200 a ton. I mean, that's a huge range, and in fact, you can basically say we have no idea as to what the magnitude of the social cost of carbon is, because very respectable economists looking at this put that number in a range of $11 to, what, $250? That's all over the place. There's simply no agreement on this. And the result is that climate negotiations have shifted over to more or less an abandonment of the, of the social cost of carbon and simply, uh, simply deciding on intermediate targets. And by that I mean the following. You start out you start out with a target for temperature. And right now the target is two degrees. And the idea is that we're not going to let the temperature at the end of the century go above, increase by more than two degrees Celsius. And actually now that's being reduced to one and a half degrees, even though two degrees is probably not feasible. I mean, with any reasonable, imaginable policy, the two degree target's probably not possible. But whatever, that's the target. So what we're going to do is agree on Two degrees is the target, because anything above two degrees, we are going to declare is catastrophic. Now, there's no evidence for that, but we're going to declare and agree that above two degrees, it's a catastrophe. Then what we're going to do is convert the two degrees into limits on the atmospheric CO2 concentration. And we do that for the CO2 concentration, not just at the end of the century, but mid-century and so on, maybe 10, 20-year intervals. And then we take that and we translate it into emission reductions. So if we know what the concentration has to be, it has to be below some number, then we know that total emissions have to be reduced by some amount. Okay, so that's the plan. That's how it's done now. We use these targets, these intermediate targets. And, um, but what we're doing, in effect, is we're replacing the social cost of carbon. We declare that we can't figure out what it is, and we replace it with an arbitrary target. There's no real economic justification for two degrees and the corresponding reductions in emissions that that implies, but we use that as a target. We just say, look, we've got to agree on something, so let's agree on that. Now, maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe we can't do much better. I'm going to suggest that maybe we can, so uh, let, me, let me get to that.
So look, um, you know, if we go back and ask, well, why can't we simply go back to the idea of a tax and agree on what the right size of that tax is, we have to ask, why is it we can't agree on the social cost of carbon? Why is it that we can't get a, a handle on what the size of the external cost is, that we simply cannot get close to it? We have estimated, economists have done a very good job estimating the external cost of uh, SOx and NOx, sulfur and nitrogen oxide emissions from coal-fired power plants. We've done a very good job on estimating the external cost of lead emissions from back in the old days when we had gasoline that had lead in it uh, from automobiles. So, and nitrous, nitrogen emissions from cars, we can estimate. Why has it been so hard to do this? Well, one reason, perhaps one of the greatest reasons, is that we're looking at 100, 200 years, and that means the discount rate drives everything. So, um, you know, you have incredible sensitivity to the discount rate, and there is no agreement among economists as to what the right discount rate should be when you're looking at something that's going to cause harm 100 years from now. It's a very, very long time. What's the right discount rate? We don't know. We don't have any agreement. We have a lot of views about this. One view is that for ethical reasons, whatever, however you get to that, on ethical grounds, it should be a low number. Another view is based on economic grounds. This is what the return on investment is. It should be a high number. But there's no agreement. And, um, and then there's very large uncertainties. Some of them we can't even characterize. So the extent of warming under current and future emissions, we don't really know. There's a great deal of uncertainty over that, a, a huge amount of uncertainty. And then you get to the impact. So let's assume for the moment that we could predict what the impact of ongoing emissions will be, that we can predict what will happen in terms of temperature increase, that it'll be three degrees or whatever, that we could predict that. We don't have a clue as to what that means in terms of impact on, and I'm going I'm to use the word GDP, but I'm going to use it to mean GDP broadly defined. So I'm going to take health impacts, monetize those, include those in a GDP impact, ecosystem loss, monetize it and make it part of GDP. I need something that's numerical, something that puts it in dollar terms. All right, so we're going to use that in terms of GDP. We don't know what that impact is. And we don't know how much worse off the world would be if by the end of the century the temperature increased by two degrees, which is this target, or even five degrees. It's just, and not only don't we know, there is good reason, you can read the paper and you know, refer you to the articles, but there's good reason to think we won't know. If we come back and reconvene here in 10 years from now, uh, we won't know, and <laughs> we still won't know. And it's the nature of the animal that is just not, it's something that just may not be knowable. Um, a very bright guy named Mervyn King has written about this, but, uh, but not in terms of climate. He, he did it in terms of financial collapse. And he calls this radical uncertainty. That uh, radical uncertainty is a term he introduced in his, in his new book, which I really like. And um, the idea is that you have, 90 you have Knightian uncertainty, where you can't really put probabilities down for events. But this is extreme Knightian uncertainty in the sense that with regular Knightian uncertainty, there's this hope that in 10 years, 
we will be able to assign probabilities. Radical uncertainty, a la Mervyn King, is forget about it. You're not going to get the answers in five years or ten years. You're not going to know the answers. He calls that radical uncertainty. And, you know, his point is, this is the quote from the book, the fundamental point is that if you don't know what the future might hold, we don't know. And there is no point pretending otherwise. And, you know, the problem here is that we build these models, we make these, we have these, you know, arguments where we pretend otherwise. We pretend we know. I've written quite a bit. I don't want to spend time today um, going over this. I've written quite a bit about the problems with these models. They're, they're called integrated assessment models. They combine a model of the climate system with an economic model that describes the damages that would occur, reductions, usually it's in terms of reductions in GDP and consumption that would occur under various climate scenarios, higher temperature, whatever. And these models have lots of problems, and I view them as really unsuitable for policy analysis for much of the same reason that uh, Mervyn King talks about the problem of some of the financial models that are used to try to predict what will happen to the financial system, the banking system, why those models are so useless. But let me go on with this. So, look, how do you estimate the social cost of carbon? The way it's normally done is using an integrated assessment model. And in fact, by the nature, by the definition, there's almost no other way to do it, and I'll explain why. What you do with this thing is you start out with a base case for the path for emissions. You say this is how emissions are going to grow over the next hundred years, and that gives you a result. It gives you a resulting concentration, it gives you a resulting change in temperature, and a resulting, a resulting uh, path for GDP. And then what you do is you perturb the path. You increase current emissions by one ton, just today. Today's emissions by one ton. All right? And now you re-simulate over again. And of course, what's going to happen is you're going to have a new path for GDP, which will be very slightly lower, be a little lower because of this extra ton of carbon that you're emitting today. And then you simply calculate the present value of this little bit of loss of GDP year by year over the next 100 years. And that present value is the social cost of carbon. All right? It's a marginal social cost of one extra ton of carbon. Now, um, there are problems with this, of course. First, as I've said in plenty of times, the models are flawed. They're just, they just don't, they make believe we know things that we don't know. Um, the relationships in these models, if you look at them carefully, are ad hoc. They're made up to a large extent. Um, you can get any result you want for the choice of parameters. Um, they can tell you nothing about the likelihood or impact of catastrophic outcomes, which, if you play around with the numbers, drives the social cost of carbon completely. If you didn't think there was much of a chance of a catastrophic outcome, a really bad outcome, and if you thought that we can basically assume that the middle-of-the-road scenarios, the 90 percentile you know, 90% confidence interval scenarios or what we'll experience, you don't have to worry about carbon, carbon dioxide. Forget about it. The only reason we need to worry is the possibility of an extreme outcome. And the problem is these models can tell us absolutely nothing about that. Zero. And what they do that's most problematic, gets back again to Mervyn King's quote, 
is they give us this false sense of knowledge and precision. They make believe that we know something that we really don't know much about. All right? But now we've got a problem. You know, one answer to this is let's give up on the social cost of carbon, forget about it, and two degrees, that's a nice number. It's an even number, a round number. Let's take two degrees, agree on it, and go from there. All right? And uh, what do we do? Is there any alternative? And I, I am going to propose a way to estimate an average social cost of carbon. This is a little bit different. It's defined differently. I'll explain it. And I'm going to propose it be done by expert elicitation, by asking people, by surveys. You might say, wait a minute. If we don't know what the impact of two degrees will be on GDP, what's the point of asking people? And my answer to that is that the way we do things when we come up with a policy is that we try to get a consensus, try to get an understanding of this is the best we can do. This is what we think. However we think it, this is what we think might happen. And take all those opinions and say, look, this is where we are. What does that suggest that we do? Okay? And that's what I'm going to propose. So before I get to that, I have to explain the difference between the social cost of carbon as we normally think of it, a marginal SCC, versus an average social cost of carbon. The marginal number is how we usually think about um, externalities, how we, how we normally measure things. All right? The problem is that it gives us today's carbon tax, assuming we're on an optimal trajectory and stay on an optimal trajectory, and there's little reason to think that's true. Secondly, the, it changes over time. So the social cost of carbon, the marginal social cost, will change, usually rise over time. And the way to think about it is to think about a depletable resource, the price of a depletable resource. So think of the unpolluted atmosphere as the depletable resource. And as you emit carbon dioxide and it fills up in the atmosphere, you reach a point where things are very bad, and now there's no more clean atmosphere left, and you've depleted the resource. And that's exactly isomorphic to a hoteling model where you're producing an exhaustible and a depletable resource with constant marginal cost. Or think of a modified hoteling model where you have increasing marginal cost or you have exploration going on so that the cost of extraction is getting higher and higher. Same thing, what will happen is you'll still have a rising price. It'll be a little different, but you'll have a rising price. Same thing with the social cost of carbon. Again, it's isomorphic to that problem. Any convex damage function will give you that. So uh, it will change over time. And that means that when you use that for policy, you have to be ready to say, look, we're going to change the emission quotas that correspond to the tax or the tax itself year by year. And that's hard to do. It's very, very sensitive to the discount rate. We can take any, any model we want, and if we change the discount rate, you know, we're going to get a, a wild change in the social cost of carbon. If you think the right discount rate on future consumption is 1%, you're going to get a big number for the social cost of carbon. If you think it's 5%, consistent with financial markets, you're going to get a tiny number for the social cost of carbon. It is critically dependent on the discount rate, and we simply don't agree on what that rate should be. And you need, a, an in, you need a model. You see, you can't use surveys or expert elicitation to get a marginal social cost, because remember how it's defined. We're going to increase 
today's emissions by one ton and keep everything else the same? How do you ask that question? How can somebody answer that question? It's, it's just not possible. So you must base it on a model, and these models have all these problems. So that's the difficulty with the social cost of carbon as we normally think of it. The average social cost of carbon that I'm proposing is the value of a flow of benefits over a long period of time from a large reduction in emissions over a period of time throughout the future relative to the size of the reductions. So it's still going to be a benefit over an emission reduction, but a large benefit over time divided by a large reduction over time. And I'll explain this. And I'll I'll try to argue that this gives much better guidance for policy over an extended period of time. And really, that's how we're operating. We're operating over an extended period of time. Uh, My understanding is that in the UK, there are now statutes that declare that the UK will reduce its emissions relative to what they were, I think, in 1990. Um, Ultimately, by 80%, I think, in 50 years from now, which is quite a reduction, 80 or 82%, I forgot the exact numbers. This is in the statutes. So, you know, here in the UK, this is a long-term plan. That's what we have. That's what you've got right now. It's a long-term plan. So uh, this gives you the guidance for what that plan should look like. It's consistent with the policy problem. You want to eliminate a range of policy outcomes, not policy, a range of climate outcomes, and and you need to to reduce emissions by a large amount to do that. So, you know, the the one-ton reduction is very nice, but we need a large reduction to do that. And uh, we're going to see it's much less sensitive to the discount rate. It kind of gets around this discount rate problem. Okay? And... uh, Furthermore, it lends itself to expert elicitation, which is the technique I would use to get this number. All right. So the basic framework that I use, am using, uh, is the following. First, the primary object of analysis uh, is the economic impact of climate change, measured by the broadly defined reduction in GDP. Okay? I don't care the mechanism, about the mechanisms, about how those reductions occur, those impacts occur. I don't care whether, uh, cli- whether the GDP is highly sensitive to uh, temperature and a small temperature increase results in a big drop in GDP or the other way around. All I really care about is you tell me what the reduction will be in GDP if we don't do anything, Okay. And uh, I want the probabilities of these outcomes. I want to know what is the probability that under business as usual, and by that I mean BAU, business as usual, we already have policies in place that we don't do anything else, that all we do is whatever we're doing right now and we don't do anything else, that under this business as usual, what's the probability that 50 years from now, as a result of climate change, We're going to see a reduction in GDP of at least 2%, or 10%, or 20%, and so on. And I'm going to use, again, expert elicitation to get those numbers. And then I want to know, if we wanted to avert the the, the worst outcomes, you know, we're not going to stop any outcome. We're not going to prevent any outcome of climate change. That's not doable. But if we wanted to prevent the worst outcomes, how much would, would emissions have to be reduced? over the next 50, 80 years. By how much would we have to lower the growth rate of emissions? And again, I'm going to use expert elicitation. Okay? 
And um, the focus here is going to be on the bad outcomes, the extreme outcomes, because that's what drives the social cost of carbon. Again, it, you see this. I can show you this with examples. What matters is the really big outcomes, the bad outcomes. So what about using expert opinion? Why do this? So look, for economists, you know, this is, we don't like this, usually. And, um, uh, you know, we build models to avoid relying on subjective opinions. That's why we build models. We don't like to ask people about what they think. And uh, the problem here is, if you think about it, these models that we use in climate for climate analysis are, in fact, the result of expert opinions of the modelers. They're just what the modeler thinks. And that's part of the reason why these models are all over the place in terms of what they predict, because the opinions are all over the place. And uh, it means the modeler is the expert, and that's especially true for climate change, where we know so little, where the theory and the data provide so little guidance. You know, there's theory and some data when it comes to what we call climate sensitivity. How will an increase in the atmospheric CO2 concentration affect temperature? We don't know a lot, but we know something. When it comes to the damage function, how does a higher temperature affect GDP? There's no theory. There's nothing. No data, no theory, no nothing. Okay? And we really don't know anything. And so that means, well, you know, again, this is, the model's not going to tell us much. So look, experts are going to reach opinions in different ways. And you could say, well, if we don't know anything, why do we want to ask experts? They don't know anything either. Some experts might use models. They might rely on one model, or they might rely on several models, or they might rely partly on a model but know what the problems of the models are and adjust their views accordingly. They might rely on research they've done. Uh, they are, could rely on all kinds of things. They simply reflect right now the views, the opinions, no matter how they're founded, of those people who we could call experts, and I have to explain what I mean by an expert. These are people that are identified based on their established expertise as measured by highly cited publications. There are other ways to measure expertise, other ways to identify so-called experts. The way I use, because I'm an academic, is research expertise based on publications that are highly cited, and I'll explain how that works in a moment. And so, look, the other thing why I, I think this is a better approach is that this idea of asking people, it's simpler and it's transparent, and transparency is very important here. If you look at the models that are used to generate you know, projections and try to figure out what's going on, you can figure out what's going on in Bill Nordhaus's model, the DICE model. It's well-documented, it's fairly simple, you can read all the equations, you can understand it, it's pretty clear. You go to some of the other models and good luck trying to figure out what's happening. There's a very big model at MIT. I don't have a clue, I can't have no clue what goes on in that thing. And I'm not sure the modelers have a clue as to what's going on in that thing. So it's, it's totally you know, obscure, it's hidden. And I want something that's transparent, okay? So, look, you could claim, when, you, when I get through this, that I'm using a model to begin with, but this is something with very, very few moving parts and uh, much more transparent than any of these IAMs. All right. So, let me just show you what an expert might say. This is a hypothetical expert, me. I just came up with some numbers. So I'm going to ask 50 years from now, 
This is the percent reduction in GDP, Z, and maybe it's 0, 0 0.02, 0 0.05, all the way up to 0.5. Okay? And uh, I'm going to be interested in minus the log of 1 minus Z. The reason I'm doing that is that I want to fit this to data. I want to, fit, I want to take these results from experts and fit a distribution. I'll use different distribution. I'll show you soon how I do that. And, and it's easier to do that if I use this phi instead of z, because there's no limit on the right, the right end tail. Okay? It's not bounded on the right. And these are the probabilities that this expert, namely me, came up with. And this F is, capital F is, is the cumulative distribution. This is 1 minus F. And this is the same thing, but looking out much later, 150 years from now. Okay? So some expert came up with this. These are the numbers that we might get if we ask people. Now, um, I asked him and, and uh, Ian about what I should talk about, you know, what I can say in this lecture, and they said, whatever you want, but you've got to have at least five equations. So I've got five equations in here. So here is the framework I'm going to use. So we're going to start out with 50 years along the lines of the table I just showed you. And uh, this is GDP without a climate impact, Y0. And this is the impact. So some outcome Z implies that GDP in the future will be E to the minus phi times Y0. And again, we're going to fit this phi to a distribution. And we expect the impact to begin slowly and then increase beyond 50 years. Okay, It's going to keep growing, but eventually level out. And I'm going to use this really simple framework for the evolution of the impact, where beta describes the rate at which it approaches some maximum level phi m. And we need to calibrate this to get phi m, the maximum, and beta. How are we going to do that? So to get beta, what I'm going to do is use the average impact at two different dates. Remember, I had a panel there for 50 years and 150 years. And so I'm going to take the average impact at those two dates, and then, using this, I get a relationship that gives me beta in terms of an equation based on the ratio of those average impacts at the two dates. They happen to be about 2, 2.06, for the numbers I had before. And if you solve this equation, you get a value of beta that's roughly 0.01. Okay? That's how I get beta. Now we need the distribution for phi m, but that comes from the distribution for the impact 50 years from now, which I'm getting from these experts. So this is how I get, I have a distribution for phi 1, that's 50 years from now. I know beta, I know t1 is 50. That's how I get the distribution for the maximum impact. And uh, GDP starts out again at its initial value. It evolves like this. And we know what the loss is from climate-induced reductions at any point in time. Once we have this distribution, we know what the loss would be if we know the actual impact. And so the distribution for the impact in 50 years gives us the distribution for climate damages in every year, starting today all the way out into the future. And the benefit portion of this average social cost of carbon is simply going to be the damages that are avoided, the present value of the damages avoided by reducing emissions by some amount. That's, that's the basic idea. It's fairly simple. So how do we do this? We start out with a scenario. 
And the scenario is to truncate the distribution, to eliminate the really bad outcomes. All right? We're not going to eliminate any outcome. We're going to eliminate the really bad ones. For example, we're going to eliminate the possibility of a reduction in GDP greater, than 20, greater or equal to 20%. That's a, a possibility, something like that. Okay? Really bad outcome. All right. Uh, then what we're going to do is get the present value, B0, that's the benefit, of the expected avoided reduction in the flow of GDP by avoiding this bad outcome. Then we're going to figure out the change, the reduction in emissions, the total amount of emission reduction needed to do this. It needed to truncate the distribution. And then the social cost of carbon is simply, it's the average social cost, is simply B0 over delta E. That's all it is in dollars per ton. Okay? And so we just need to estimate these numbers, B0 and delta E, and here's how we do it. So to get B0, well, we have the ex if we have the distribution, if we fit the distribution, remember we're going to have many experts, not one, many, and we're going to fit a distribution to this for phi at 50 years from now. And from that, we can get the total benefit from truncating the distribution by just taking the difference in the expectations. This is the expectation, if we don't, if we don't do anything, business as usual, this is the expectation for the truncated distribution. And it turns out, if you truncate at even a high number, like 20%, you're going to get a lot of your potential damages removed. It's very, very sensitive to the really bad outcomes. All right, and if you look at this, what's going on here, this here, beta y0 times this divided by this thing, is the present, the current flow of benefit and dividing by these two terms puts it in present value terms. Okay, so that's the benefit part. And uh, by truncating the distribution, uh, we're getting the, and then dividing by this, we're getting the present value. Now what about the emission reduction? How do we get that? So current emissions, we know, and under business as usual, we think they're going to grow by some amount, let's say M0. That's the growth rate. <clears throat> and I'm going to assume it's just some average growth rate. Of course, it may not be constant, but I'm going to ask, what would the average growth rate be if we don't do anything new? That's M0. Let me just... All right. We want to ask, what is the reduced growth rate, <coughs> the lower growth rate, M1, now and through the future, that we need to truncate the distribution? So, for example, M0 might be 2%, and maybe M1 is minus 2%. What would it have to be? Then, uh, we're going to get this from expert opinion as well, from surveys. And now, I'm going to make an assumption, and this is, you may agree or disagree, that the real cost per ton, the, uh, the real cost per ton of abatement is constant. And the reason I'm going to do this is there are two offsetting effects. If you think about this, what's going to happen to the cost of abatement? Well, first of all, the cost will go down if you think there'll be technological progress. We'll come up with new technologies, replacements for coal and oil, and so on, and that will lower the cost of abatement over time. On the other hand, we know that as you abate, it gets harder and harder to abate more. So after you've reduced emissions by 20%, to reduce it another 10% gets harder. 
And after you've reduced it by 50, to get to 60 is even harder still. So these are offsetting effects. One lowers the average cost, one raises it. And so I'm going to assume that these two effects offset each other roughly so that the average cost will be the same. And as a result, what I'm going to do is discount those future emissions at the same discount rate I'm using for the benefits, the same rate R. And if I do that, I get this number for the total amount of reduced emissions, depends on the difference of the growth rates and, uh, and the interest rate and the discount rate. Okay? So that's the total amount. All right, the average social cost of carbon is just this ratio, B0 over delta E. Here is, I've, I've written it this way, with, I've separated terms, and the reason is that you can think of this first part as the instantaneous flow of the social cost of carbon. This is the flow variable, the flow of social cost. And the second part puts this in present value terms, creates a present value out of this. So that's how I've written it. Okay. So what do we need to do this? We need the distribution for impact at some time T1. We need that because we're going to truncate that. We need the expected impact at some future point. In longer than T1, maybe, maybe 100 years, 150 years, something. We need that to get beta. We need M0 and M1, the business as usual emission rate, emission growth rate, and the reduced growth rate to truncate the distribution. And we need a discount rate, R. Okay, that's what we need. And um, let me, before I go into the how we use expert opinion, let me give you a, just a little numerical example of this. I'll use data for 2013. So world greenhouse gas, I'm going to use CO2 equivalent, which takes methane and converts it into the equivalent amount of CO2. Emissions were about 33 billion metric tons in that year. The growth rate of uh, those emissions, 1990 to 2013, was about 3%. But US and Europe had zero growth over that period. All this growth came from Asia. And it's likely that under business as usual, that rate will slow down. So maybe 2% is a reasonable number for the business as usual growth rate as opposed to 3. World GDP was about $75 trillion. And the real per capita growth rate, about 2% at that time. And I'm going to use a discount rate of 4%. We can play with this, but I'll use that for now. And a beta of 0.01, which came from the, the little example in that table. And I'm going to assume that by reducing emissions, this is just the numerical example, so that by reducing emissions growth rate from plus 2% to minus 2% per year would avoid the worst, two worst outcomes, the 20% and the 50% drop in GDP. Okay. And so these are the expectations, the truncated distribution. And uh, here's the benefit. It comes out to be about $89 trillion dollars. Here's the change in emissions, about 1.1 trillion metric tons. We divide one by the other, and it comes out to be $81 per ton in this little example. Okay? So that's how this works. All right. We might ask, how does it depend on the discount rate? Because one of the things I said, one of the advantages I said that comes out of this approach is a reduced dependence on the discount rate. So we can recalculate these numbers using different discount rates. And you can see what happens. As we raise the discount rate, the benefit portion goes down a lot. Okay? 
but the change in emissions goes down as well, and the result is that the social cost of carbon goes down, but not nearly as much as it would from, for a marginal social cost. So once we move to an average social cost by construction, we have something that's much less sensitive to the discount rate. So if you think the discount rate should be point, you know, two and a half percent, not four percent, that's fine. It's going to make a difference, but not a huge difference. And that's very important. All right. Um, now, I'm going to use a survey to get these numbers, and I'll tell you how I do this. So I want people with research experience and expertise in climate change and its impact. And I use Web of Science to identify highly cited publications over the past 10 years. These can be journal articles, uh, chapters in books. Um, and in six, the Web of Science puts things in research areas. I'm using six areas. Um, one is agriculture, business and economics, environmental science, geology, and an area called meteorology and atmospheric science. Because these are the areas where we find these kinds of papers. Okay? And um, I use Web of Science search terms. I come up with search terms to try to identify publications related to climate change and its impact. And I'll show you how I do that. And then what I do is in each year, I take the top, th those publications that are in the top 10% of citations. Only those that were in the top 10% of citations in that year. And I do it year by year because obviously publications last year are going to have fewer sites on average than publications that occurred eight years ago. So we do it year by year. And then from these, I get a list of distinct authors. And there's a problem here because in some fields, in economics, for example, authors are people who are closely connected with the research. In other fields, uh, geology, for example, the list includes anybody who's affiliated with the laboratory. So you'll have typically five, six, seven authors on a paper, unlike economics. And what we want to do to keep everything the same, we want to keep publications per author roughly the same, what I'm going to do here is I'm narrowing the list of authors so the percentage of authors in each field matches the percentage of highly cited publications in each field. And that means culling the authors in terms of keeping the ones with the highest number of citations. All right? So I eliminate some authors so that for all the authors I'm going after, we all have, on average, the same number of publications per author. Okay? So that's how I identify people. These are the search terms. And, um, you know, this took some doing, looking at what, what does it turn up. Some of these are obvious terms, climate policy, radiative forcing, carbon price, damages, and so on. So those are the search terms. And um, this is what came out of the Web of Science search. We got about, in agriculture, 282 publications, business and economics, 257. Environmental science and ecology had the biggest number, about 1,800, and so on. And then here are the distinct authors. And these are publications, authors per publication. You can see for agriculture, it's about five, over five. For economics, it's only about two and a half. Geology, it's six. And what we want to do is keep the authors per publication fixed. So we're going to truncate the authors in these other fields to get to the 2.5%. So we're going to reduce the 1506 in agriculture to 705.6. So now the number of authors is 2.5 per publication on average. And now this is 
the percent of highly cited publications in each area, okay, and matches the percent of authors in each area. So this is how we come up with the list. It's about nine, 10,000 authors. Some of these, it turns out, are duplicates. We ended up with a list of about 8,000. And we do a survey based on a set of questions. And here are the questions. Under business as usual, uh, what's your best estimate of the average growth rate of emissions? This is M0 over the next 50 years. Under business as usual, what's the most likely climate-induced reduction in GDP in 50 years? Under business as usual, what's the probability that 50 years from now climate change will cause a reduction in GDP of at least 2%, at least 5%, at least 10 and so on? Okay. Uh, oh, before I go on, I want to mention, it, and respondents can feel free to answer some of the questions and not others. On every question, we ask people to give their level of confidence on a scale of 1 to 5. 5 means most confident. 1 means I'm not at all confident. So we ask for their confidence. We also ask for their expertise. Is it primarily economics, primarily climate science? Both. We ask for that as well because one of the things we're going to want to do is see how the answers vary across these types of people. Uh, question 5 is return. Oh, I'm sorry. Question 4 uh, under business as usual, what's the most likely reduction in GDP in the year 2150? In the 50-year time horizon, what's the average growth rate of emissions needed to prevent a reduction of GDP of 20% or more? And lastly, oops. And lastly, what's the discount rate that should be used? We ask that. Okay, so these are the questions. And this survey was done. We now have something over a thousand responses, but we're now pulling them together and running them through the program. I don't have the results to give you, but I will show you something else. So at a conference at Stanford last fall, um, there were a bunch of experts, and I gave them this survey. I gave 20 people this survey, and 11 responded. Uh, 10 were economists, and one claimed to be a climate scientist. I think, in fact, he's an economist, but anyway. <laughs> Um, but they responded. I took, and I took those responses, and, I, and I, what do they say? What comes out of that? So uh, I'm doing this to illustrate you know, how we get these parameters, how we can fit a distribution, and so on. So um, there was general agreement over the emissions growth rate under business as usual, very little variation, and a pretty amazing agreement on the likely impact of GDP. But you know, opinions regarding the probabilities of different outcomes varied quite widely among these 11 people. And I'll show you a least squares fit of a gamma distribution. It's a thin-tail distribution, uh, a generalized Pareto distribution, and a log normal, the cumulative distributions of these, to the 11 responses to that question about different probabilities. So here's what comes out. These are the actual responses the experts gave. Question one, the uh, business as usual growth of emissions. The average is 2%, and they're all, you know, between fewer at 3, 1, but most are around 2. The most likely impact is around just under 5%, um, 2%, 5%, and so on. These are, the, these are the probabilities people gave. And you can see when you get out here to 10%, 20%, there's a fair amount of variation. 10% or greater, well, um, 
One person said 5% chance of that, 35% chance of that. These numbers vary quite a bit, and even more so when you get out to the bigger, the bigger impacts. But this is what people said. Uh, this is the most likely impact in the year 2150. This is the reduced growth rate, what the growth rate would have to be to truncate the distribution. And this is the discount rate, and these are the averages down here. So you take these numbers, and let's first fit a distribution. So here's the cumulative distribution. And then I fit to these answers, and I fit the gamma, that's the blue line. The green dot line is log normal, and this pink or red dashed line is the generalized Pareto. And note that the generalized Pareto, the fit of it happens to be start at a number greater than zero. Okay? And the way I, uh, what I do here is, okay, which, what's the right distribution? I mean, you look at these, they all look kind of nice, or not nice, I don't know. But I'm going to pick the one, very simple, with the highest corrected R squared. That's it. Just goodness of fit. So it turns out that in that battle, the Pareto wins. And it has uh, the highest corrected R squareds, about 0.57. And I'm going to use that to get a social cost of carbon. And here is the fitted Pareto. Alpha, theta has three parameters. And alpha determines the fatness of the tail. So um, the number of moments that exists are uh, alpha minus one. So this is very thin-tailed, it turns out, that when I fit the generalized Pareto to this thing, I got a distribution where the tails are quite thin. We've got 28, what is it? Uh, yeah, 28 moments exist. Um, and the distribution starts at about 3.5%. Okay? So that's what comes out, um, thin-tailed. And so I'm going to use the average numbers for M0, M1, and the discount rate here is about 2.4% discount rate. I need beta. Now, it turns out that for these values of Z1 and Z2, beta is negative. So when this happens, I'm just going to constrain it to be 0.005. It has to be a positive number. And, and it's not very sensitive to that anyway. But with that, I get a social cost of carbon of $82 per metric ton. Okay? This, is not, this is just what 11 people happen to say. And that's all it is. It's just an example based on these 11 people. But it comes up with a number like $82. All right. Um, the next step is to take... The, we have over a 1,000 responses, and what do they say? And how does what they say differ by uh, the degree to which they are confident in their answers? If we simply include answers for which the confidence level is 3, 4, or 5, or just 4 or 5, what kind of answers do we get? What do we get? Um, what is it, how does it differ if we separate economists from climate scientists? How, do that, how does that differ? Um, how does it differ? It turns out when we do this, we, we don't know the, the names of the people who respond. It's kept anonymous. But we do know the location, uh, the GPS location, exact location of their computer, uh, where they did. <laughs> so you'll never do this survey, right? So, <laughs> so, but this is very good because what we can do is ask, what about U.S. versus Europe, other parts of the world? We can do this regionally. Are there differences in opinions in different regions? We have enough responses in, geographically in order to do that. Okay? So, but I don't have those answers yet. I can't show them to you. You have to stand by. 
So look, what, what are we getting here? So first of all, um, let me just quickly summarize. Look, very hard to date to agree on the social cost of carbon, and I think that's the nature of the beast. We use a marginal social cost. That's how we do it in environmental economics. That's the standard approach, but it's very, very hard to do. You cannot use expert elicitation for that. It won't work because you're asking what happens if you have one extra ton or one reduced ton, either way, of carbon in one year. I mean, you just can't get an answer that way. So this is very hard, and the result has been a movement to a temperature target. You might argue that, look, this is the best we can do. You know, two degrees is a nice number. It's a low number. Whether you can justify, don't justify, let's just go with it. And that, that basically is the view of many people who are following the negotiations. Hey, it's a number. Let's see. Let's just get people to reduce emissions. That's not entirely unreasonable. You know, you could argue that we, we don't know much about this. We're, we're fighting. We're arguing. And it's not unreasonable to just say, let's pick a number and try to, you know, get to that. Even if we can't attain that, we, we can try. Okay? And, not, and not even try to get the social cost of carbon. But... Um, uh, you know, the commitments here are very unclear, and um, I've argued that a harm, I and others have argued that a harmonized carbon tax would be a much better instrument, in part because it's the advantages in terms of negotiations, in terms of monitoring, compliance, and so on, much better. But you need some kind of social cost of carbon to do that. And um, I've argued that we can use expert opinion uh, to do this, fit distributions to that to see what we get. Again, you know, the, the argument here is, well, wait a minute. If the modelers are all over the place, probably these experts are all over the place. The people at Stanford, the 11 people, you know, they were, some of their answers were all around or differed considerably. Why is that any better? And the answer is, look, we're doing something based on what we think the world looks like. How we think what we think, whether we use a complex model to get there, whether we use some other kind of analysis, whether we use you know, whatever it is we've read or thought about or studied, this is what we think. This is what people think. This is where we are, and we want to know how different people think about it. And so it's very clear. It's very transparent. And I feel that's a much better way to go. It's much more useful, much more honest in a way than, than using models. Um, so if we fit distributions, we can estimate a benefit of eliminating some of the extreme outcomes, which I take to be a 20% reduction or greater of GDP. And um, we're also going to use expert opinion to estimate the required reduction in emissions to achieve that outcome, that truncation. And remember, we're not asking how much do we have to reduce emissions to prevent anything. We're not going to prevent anything. We want to prevent only the more extreme outcomes. And they drive the social cost. And uh, we're going to find that out. We're going to get from that a total discounted emission reduction. And then the average social cost of carbon is just this ratio. It's very straightforward. And uh, as I said, we're now implementing the survey. And you have to stand by for the results. And so now let me see what you think about all this and get questions, and, and, and let me just, before I get all the questions and criticism, I want to just tell you, I'm very thick-skinned. So, 
Um, so, you know, you don't have to be polite. Thank you. Well, I mean, be polite, but, uh, but, you know, if you think this is, whatever you think, tell me. Thanks very much. Okay, let's uh, open the floor for, for some questions. Yes, over here in the middle. If you, if you just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Bob Wolf from the Grantham Research Institute, and um, I really like what you're doing, and I think it will produce results that are really very interesting. But I think they'll be interesting in terms of showing perhaps the same thing as the IAMs, i.e. that you'll get a big range of, of uh, opinions. And, you, and the main problem, I think, is that with expert elicitation, you only really have, you're essentially asking the experts to forecast something, and you only really get any use out of that if you can measure skill in some way. And you have this fundamental problem that you're not able to estimate the skill of the forecast because the expertise in any area is not a is not a pro demonstrably a proxy for skill. Often, expert elicitations that uh, seem to produce benefits have some way of measuring skill over time. So people are asked to make forecasts, and you can see the outcome. But in this situation, arguably, you you could have the case where all of your experts have zero skill, and you wouldn't know one way or the other. No, you're absolutely right. That's an issue. And, um, you know, th there's a literature on this, I, on, on doing licitations based on tests of how accurate somebody is in forecasting. You can't do that here in climate change because we'd have to start the work now and then finish it 50 years from now. So we can't do that. Um, what matters for me is I want the, well, let me say two things. First, I, the way I'm doing this, I want the selection of experts to be absolutely objective. I want to use some rule. I don't want to choose people. I mean, I chose those people at Stanford because they were at the conference. But I don't want to choose people. You know, I could. I mean, I know people that I think have a lot of skill, but I don't want to do that. So I've had a number of people send me emails saying, I heard you have this, you know, I heard that you've got this uh, survey and so-and-so and in my research group is responding, and I'd like to respond, can you send me a link? And I have to say, look, I'm sorry, but we're using this very rigid criterion for who gets to respond. And what I'm using is, again, publications you know, impact in terms of research. Now, there's not a, there may not be a close correlation between research impact or publications and what you're calling skill. I guess the other response I get, would give, is that I don't see what I'm doing as being kind of, I'm not trying to come up with a final number. So whether I get $80 or whatever I get out of this thing, um, I'm not going to claim that, you know, this is the right number and this is what should be used. What I'm trying to do is show that an average social cost of carbon is a useful, probably more useful, measure to guide policy. And second of all, that you could do something like this and make it, have it make sense. There are other ways of selecting experts. People have suggested, well, what about using, each country has a group, I forgot what they're called, a working group that comes up with the numbers for that country. Presumably those people have a fair amount of expertise because they were selected by the government of each country. I can't get those names if I could. I could survey them separately, but I, I don't know. I can't get the names. Uh, but, you know, there are other ways of doing it. And um, what I want to do, is, I consider this more research than trying to come up with a number to be used for policy. And what I want to do is show that this is a way to do it. It's a valid way to do it. And it could be a useful way to do it. And then if there's agreement on that, 
you know, the interagency working group in the United States that took these three models and averaged them and all that stuff, maybe they could do this. Or the new group at the National Academy of Sciences, do something like this. Okay, the uh, gentleman in the white jacket. Uh, two things. <clears throat> How is that? So presumably, eighty-two dollars, if it's the category, that would be the tax. But how would that be a, a disincentive to to go? I mean, how would that make people go away from business as usual? I mean, you could have a, a tax at eighty, but the people will still burn, and so. Presumably, then, the tax is collected to pay off the losers uh, or uh, from the high... Uh, but the losers will be uh, way in the future. And so how would you make sure that the governments keep that tax, that, that revenue, to pay off, uh, to pay the losers uh, sometime... So that's my first question. And the second, I would like to suggest that following COS, um, one can also look at the problem in a different way. So that there is uh, the atmosphere that we all own. So what about if we give ownership to the atmosphere to us, to the individuals? And, uh, um, and then there are the polluters. And they have to pay, let's say that the, the carbon budget is uh, a trillion tons. So, you know, let's, I think that more or less it's agreed that it's about a trillion tons. So what if we would give the permits to uh, individuals in, in the world? So everybody in the world gets every year an allocation permits, uh, and then the polluters have to buy them. And so let the, the market decide what the, the, the price is, what the, the, the price of carbon should be. All right, so uh, in order, well, let me actually go backwards, start with your second question. In order to do that, you've got to come up with a quantity. And to, for the market to decide, you're going to have tradable permits, right? You've got to come up with a number, a quantity, which effectively puts a quantity on emission reductions. But then you're right back to what's the social cost of carbon, because how do you figure out what that reduction should be? You've got to come up with that number, and that's what the social cost of carbon gives you. It gives you, effectively, the tax gives you the reduction. So if you know what the tax is and you know supply and demand elasticities, you can come up with what the reduction in emissions will be that will result. But let me go to your first question, which is, you know, how is that going to reduce, I wasn't completely clear, how is that really going to reduce emissions people will still pollute? Look, if we impose, I mean, let me take something very simple, like gasoline, petrol. So if we impose a tax on that, you know, you're going, to be, you're going to buy a smaller car. You're going to do less driving. People respond. We know that they do. I mean, we've seen plenty of studies that show that people respond to higher prices. So when you impose a tax, people on their own reduce the amount of carbon they emit because you're taxing them. You're telling them if you want to emit a ton of carbon, it's going to cost you whatever it is, $80 to do that. So that's going to be the incentive for people not to emit carbon. Now, in terms of what do you do with the money? Do you have to save it for the losers or whatever? I'm not sure whether the losers are people who are going to be impacted by climate change or people who 
are going to get hurt by the tax. But basically, you want the government of each country to do whatever it wants. That's what makes this work, is that you're not declaring that all this money goes to some international organization, it goes who knows where. Each country keeps the money, and they could use it to protect people who, lower income people who might be hurt by the tax. They could use it to hurt, to protect people who might be damaged by climate change, you know, that does occur. They could do whatever they want with it. And that's how, what we do with cigarette taxes in the United States anyway. So, you know, states collect the tax and they do what they want. Yeah, but with cigarette taxes, you pay, you use it to uh, fund the hospitals. Uh, oh, so they no, can... that's the theory. You use it to fund the hospitals. No, no, no. What happens with cigarette taxes, I can just tell you about the United States. I don't know how it works here. In the United States, most cigarette taxes state by state. Federal government collects some which is used to fund a variety of things. Who knows what it's used for? That's actually not even clear. Most of the tax is state by state. So Massachusetts, where I live, collects a lot of money in cigarette tax. What do they do with that? It just goes into their budget. It's just they do whatever they want with it. They say they're going to use it for education, they're going to use it to help people reduce smoking, but they, they just use it. It just goes in their budget. It's a source of revenue. That's all. Just like the sales tax. There's a general sales tax of 5% in Massachusetts. It's just money that goes into the budget. And that's true in every state. So states decide what they're going to do with the money. Now, you may say that, gee, they ought to use it. They should use it for this or that or whatever. But they don't. They use it however they want. Okay, the, um, actually, the gentleman there in the fifth row. Uh, thank you. Um, you make a number of moves, and you've, you've been quite explicit about some of the assumptions you make as well. Um, perhaps one, what I call a move, is you've used an average of a result at T1 and T2. Uh, an assumption would be uh, the, the discount rate. Um, have you, uh, can you say something about which of your moves or which of your assumptions have the most influence on the results uh, so this is some sort of sensitivity analysis of, of the different moves or assumption, assumptions you're making. Right. So it turns out the discount rate you know, has an impact, but it's not that big because for the reasons I showed you before, which is important here. Um, you know, the average discount rate, I think, from the 11 people that I, from Stanford was around 2.5%. If I make it 3.5%, you know, it's, it's not going to make a huge difference. It makes us, make us some difference, but not very much. Um, M1, what is the required reduction in emissions? That's something that's important. But again, that comes out of the survey. It's not a number I'm assuming. It comes out from what people say. Um, the number beta comes out from the survey unless I have to constrain it, which I did here to be 0.005. But if instead I made it 0.01, it wouldn't make much difference. So it, it seems fairly robust to those assumptions but not necessarily robust to the answers in the sense that if people think that nothing's going to happen anyway, you know, then there's very little benefit and there's a very little social cost of carbon. That comes out of the responses we get from the survey. So it's very sensitive to that. That's why we have to ask people. I, I mean things like using an average of two numbers at T1 and T2 mm -hmm. rather than some other construction. Or you, you take an average of their responses 
and take put that average result in your model rather than do the model on all of them individually and yeah. see what happens. So it's different moves instead of a... I see what you're saying. So take each individual person and treat that individual person. The problem is we're fitting a distribution here. It's very hard to fit a distribution. You know, if you give me your five probabilities... I could, in principle, the, the generalized Pareto distribution has three parameters. So I could fit it to your five numbers, you know, and then do it person by person. But that's kind of hard, and it's not clear what, I'm, what that means to take a distribution and fit it to each person. So I'm, I'm using the collection of answers, not necessarily all of them. It could be people who are more confident than, than otherwise. It could be economists versus climate scientists. But I'm taking a collection of answers to fit the distributions. Um, you know, in terms of the average, the, the 50 years and 130 years, whatever it is, I could have changed those. I could use different numbers. Um, I could play with that. I don't, I don't know offhand what it would do. But, but you're right. Those are assumptions I'm making. And again, this is a construction. So when we talk about the average social cost of carbon, this is a model of the average social cost of carbon. And you can do this in different ways. And I've chosen a very simple way to do this. And again, the purpose here is to illustrate how this approach could work, as opposed to, here's the answer, go negotiate based on this. Okay, I think there was a question at the front, and then... Thanks very much for your lecture. Um, I thought your framework was really interesting and elegant in terms of an economic solution to a problem, but I'm struggling a little bit to think about how it might work in policy terms. And what I'm struggling with specifically is the idea of how you share out the burdens of the emissions reductions that would need to happen as a result of the tax across different regions of the world. So in international negotiations, you often hear this idea of common but differentiated responsibilities. Common. But differentiated responsibilities. And so essentially it's not just a forward-looking problem, but you also look backward and think about who's contributed to the stock of emissions in the first place. Um, so I wondered if you had any thoughts on whether there is any space in your framework for those kinds of ethical issues. Well, I mean, it's, I guess the answer is that I don't, you're right, I don't consider those things. And, um, but I think what's important here is to remember that when you come up, th- th- let me back up to this idea of a harmonized carbon tax. There's nothing in that that says you can't have side payments. You know, you could say, look, why should, let's say we say that tax is $80. We agree on some number, $80, whatever it is. You know, why should very poor countries have to bear that tax? Again, the government gets to keep it. So it's a little bit tricky here because the government can take the money and give it right back to its citizens. But, you know, maybe it would still, it would affect the ability of the government to do things and so on. Why should they have to do that? And maybe what we should still do is make a side payment from rich countries to very poor countries. We might also realize that the $80 social cost, if if that's what the number comes out to be, $80 social cost of carbon, that tax, there's still going to be damage. It's not like we're going to eliminate climate change. There's still going to be some climate change. There's still going to be some damages. And there's some parts of the world where those damages could be extreme. You know, small countries that are at sea level practically, and, or Bangladesh, which would be large parts of it would be flooded. And so you could argue that with all of this, we still have to make some side, side arrangements, side payments. We need to do something to, um, it, it's going to happen, but we need to do something to 
alleviate the problems that are going to exist for those countries. So um, that's certainly reasonable within this framework. I think there's a question at the front. I'd like to come back to this question about robustness, because when the debate got going with Nick Stern and Nordhaus and so on, uh, there was a phase when people said, well, the conclusions people come to just reflect the discount rate they pick. Um, so the fact that your results are so robust to discount rate really begs the question, which of the two key features of your model is driving this? Because your model really departs from the conventional models in two ways. First, that you get away from marginal and you look at long-term averages. And secondly, you look at extreme events rather than means. And the question is, analytically, what's giving you the robustness? The first thing, the long-term average versus the mean. And uh, the extreme events are just a fact about what matters. In other words, Forget about time. I mean, forget about a discount rate. Let's assume everything's going to happen 10 years from now. That's it. And just ask what might happen and, and you know, what might the damages look like. What really matters is going to be the extreme events. So, you know, if you take a five-degree increase, it's not going to do much. It's the poss- well, it may do much. It's the possibility of a large reduction in GDP that we worry about. We don't worry that much about a 3% or 4% reduction in GDP. Those happen all the time. So that's really what, what does this. The robustness comes out of the, the long-term average. You know, again, it's a little bit like these models of exhaustible resources, where if you say, you know, the price is going to rise, but if you look at the use of the resource over 100 years, you think you're going to deplete in 100 years, then in a sense, the interest rate doesn't matter as much. So it's the same kind of thing going on. Is the question of the gentleman with a broken arm. Yes. Um, <clears throat> as a, I'm wondering if, if you were to address a, a room full of, of climate scientists, if some of the, the things which would be thrown up and, and queried would be, for instance, um, methane. Um, there are people who, who, who claim that uh, the industrial farming, the, the, way, the way that livestock is produced, on a massive scale, and which will increase with meat consumption rising in Asia. Um, if if you're not taking if that if the the social cost of carbon is not taking that into account, and in terms of the catastrophic events, there's people who are really wanting to focus on the uh, Arctic ice caps melting, and w- whether or not that would uh, involve people disputing who's which countries are responsible for that possible catastrophe? Yeah. Well, look, um, you're right. There are very different opinions about what might happen. There are climate scientists and who think that, well, and economists who would argue that the the ice, the uh, the Antarctic ice shelves are going to collapse and that would cause sea 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 levels to rise. Uh, they worry about cows. You know, methane is a really strong greenhouse gas, and it's amazing how much methane comes out of cows. <laughs> and um, cows and economists. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so, but, but see, that's the point. I'm not trying to figure this out. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, separate the agriculture from the ice caps and so on. If you're going to do this, if you're going to take this survey, all I want to know is based on everything you've looked at, everything you've thought about, uh, whether you're most concerned about agriculture or whether you're most concerned about other things, what do you think the probabilities are of these bad things happening? That, that's the bottom line. 
And different people will have different views. And that's going to be the nature of it. And all I want to do is say, look, you know, there are a bunch of people here. You have different views. That's what we get out of these different views. Whether you did it from a model, whether you did it from, you know, what you've read, whether you did it from talk discussions you've had, whatever it is, I just want to pull all that together. And that's what it says. Take all these views. And what it says is that we're looking at an average social cost of roughly whatever X. Um, so here are two questions on the el elicitation method. Um, the first one is, um, how do you make sure that the experts talk about the same thing, right? I mean, you're talking about GDP. Do you explain what GDP is? Is it about nominal? Is it about real? Mm -hmm. What does it include? What does it, does it not include? So I'm particularly concerned about this question because uh, many are not economists, right, in your, in your sample. So to what extent do you ex explain that? And the second question would be, from those uh, licitation uh, methods, we, we, we know that people often give inconsistent answers, mm -hmm. so logically inconsistent answers, basically in your probability ranking. Sometimes people just give uh, answers that are not logically consistent. Right, Pro probabilities exactly. don't add to one. And exactly, for instance, and, and given that it's uh, experts, maybe you're not too concerned about this, but if if there are answers that are inconsistent, how do you treat, uh, how do you deal with that? Okay, and by the way, there's a third thing you could mention, and that's that some people answer strategically. So, you know, I'm going I'm to say the whole world's coming to an end because I want something done. So I'm going to try to influence this survey, and that happens. So, um, first of all, regarding, you know, people don't know what's GDP. So I, I showed you a very shortened version of the, of the questions. What, the way the actual survey works is people are given information before they start. We say, please read the following. And we explain very clearly what we mean, what's GDP, what we're looking at. We give examples of, you know, what happened to GDP during the Great Depression, what happened after World War II to the GDP of Europe, of Japan, and so on. It's to get a sense of what could happen, what is a catastrophe, what, is, what does it mean to talk about a 20% drop in GDP. And we explain that we're including, you know, GDP broadly measured, health effects and so on. So we explain that. Now, is everybody going to fully understand and don't know? That's why we allow them to skip questions they feel they can't answer or tell us they don't have much confidence in the answer. And uh, what was your second point? It was about the... Oh, yeah. So, there, so I looked at some initial of the results that came in, and there were a few, not many, but a few, where the probabilities went the wrong way. It just made no sense. We, we leave out those answers. We just don't include them. There's a question at the back, yeah. Hi. Following on from that and the other question from the gentleman at the Grantham Institute, if you considered the impact of publication bias might have on these results. So, for example, in the last IPCC report, there's a lot of controversy that publications that said that solar influences were more important didn't get published because they weren't uh, as regarded as mainstream climate science. I imagine that that would affect the, the uptake of this if it ever gets to policy, that people would say these experts are biased anyway. Well, you're saying that, um, that if you don't write the correct thing, you won't get published? Is that the...? Yeah, the, yeah. the sample of, of uh, highly cited authors are only there because they're in agreement with the conventional climate science. Yeah. From the responses I'm getting from the brief review, I'm not... Sure, that's happening. I don't think that's happening. But, but I understand the concern. Look, um, I need some objective way to do it. 
And, um, you know, I can't go out and decide who's got expertise and who doesn't. And so I'm using this approach of publications. Now, again, there are other ways to do it. And one way, again, is these groups, country by country, these groups of the people that are coming up with the policies for each country, you know, they're working on it. So maybe that's another way to do it. Um, another way to do it is we know people who are heavily involved in, uh, in the IPCC framework, in the IPCC, uh, in the writing of the IPCC report. There are many ways to come up with a set of experts. I chose something that, to me, makes rough sense and is objective. I'm not inserting my opinion anywhere. So that's what I do. Yeah, question here. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, do you expect change, uh, differences across groups uh, of experts that respond to your uh, questions? Mm -hmm. And if so, uh, how do you think you will deal with them? S suppose there are differences across male-female, regions, um, topics of expertise. Yeah, so we can't do male-female because I don't have the identity of anybody but we can do uh, their reported expertise. Again, we ask them, do you consider yourself to be primarily an economist, primarily climate science, both? Uh, I think we also ask neither, so if somebody's neither, we might leave those out. So um, again, I haven't f gone through all the results, but based on early results we got, there was no difference between the, I was surprised between the economists and the climate scientists. People who declared themselves to have expertise in economics versus climate science, we seem to have some very similar results. Um, I have not looked at location. We haven't tried that yet of, you know, U.S. versus rest of world or Europe. or We haven't done that. So um, uh, I don't know how that would, if there would be a difference. I mean, I how would I deal with it? I mean, I don't know. You know, um, I would report it, basically. I would say if it turned out that economists come up with a social cost of carbon of 80 and climate scientists 90 or, you know, whatever, I'd report that. So, uh, and I'd report differences based on degree of confidence in the answers. So that's all going to come out whenever this thing gets finished and written up, which I hope will be in the next month or so. I'm afraid I, I see more hands going up, but I'm afraid we have to end the question somewhere. Um, so can you please join me in thanking Professor Pindak very much. <laughs> <laughs>